Welcome back to the fourth episode of Depolarizing America, a podcast discussing the best ways to combat polarization in American society. Each episode, we will deliver the in-depth research discovered by our science and legal teams in Science Court. I'm your host, Matt Simonson, and I am joined by Hanny Hekernier and Jess Jersik. In this episode, we will be talking with David Ashley about the sociological effects of polarization and service programs, and with Army member Luke Diamond about his experience in the military and thoughts on public service. Thank you, David, for taking some time to talk with me for the Science Court podcast. Um, would you be willing to introduce yourself to our audience um, and explain a little bit about your role on Science Court? All right. My name is David Ashley. I am a member of the science team, and my main focus is on sociology and political science. I know that you and um, also Mannix, another one of our classmates, um, have really been doing a lot of research that's ended up being pretty integral to the, the cases that the legal teams are building. How does interacting with a diverse group seem to reduce bias, prejudice, and discrimination? The main thing that seems to be based on contact theory, essentially, the idea behind it is that it, by encouraging intergroup contact between two different groups, we can hope to affect intergroup attitudes. The more two groups interact with each other, you know, generally they'll become more familiar with each other and that it will affect how they view each other. So we can also extrapolate this to political groups as well. For example, one study proposes that basically based on the common in-group model of social psychology, in-group out-group simple, you know, us-them dynamics, basically exploiting the ideas of national identity. Essentially, you know, if we can emphasize the common American identity, you know, as in we are all Americans, rather than, you know, say, Democrat versus Republican, we can therefore er, reduce partisanship by using contact theory to emphasize common similarities, help people empathize with each other, we can therefore increase ESA national identity, which should ideally then you know, help reduce effective partisanship. So this, this idea of contact theory would essentially indicate that we can bring people together um, and in doing so kind of overcome some of these differences like in, the, in a political context that might be sort of like a like partisanship and divide along the political spectrum. Um, but is, is that kind of what you found? Essentially, yeah. There is some complicating factors if you want to bring it to other contexts, unfortunately. For example, if you want to, say, bring it in between race, it's, it might be more difficult to encourage a national identity due to the fact that certain ethnic groups, based on, say, levels of, of historical oppression, they generally tend to, you know, associate less with national identity and tend to associate more with their in-group identity. So in this case, their ethnic identity. Okay, that's really interesting. So um, potentially a a service program based on the idea of a common American identity might be a better solution for some forms of polarization than others. Essentially, yes. Very interesting. Um, Well, this this is kind of related to that idea of individual identity, Um, but Based on your research, how have you found um, that individualism in a population um, might affect whether or not people generally support um, compulsory practices such as a mandatory service program? In order to answer this, we need to go all the way back to the Revolutionary War and what eventually essentially formed the basis of America's military system. And by that, of course, I mean our original Continental Army. Now, oh, 
in colonial times, we basically used compulsory service for our colonial militias when it came time for us to create continental armies, which then eventually formed the backbone of the American Revolution. That was based on a model of voluntarianism. That was essentially created in opposition to the compulsory model employed by the British forces. In today's evil, in more contemporary military settings, for example, this book, All That We Can Be by Charles C. Moscos and John Sibley Butler, it notes that this policy of voluntarianism also means that if as you know, military jobs become less attractive to, say, more middle-class people, you know, white middle-class folks, essentially in the 70s, it's known that rates of people who had college degrees vastly dropped off from the military. And, you know, then he had, you know, he had more of an ethnically diverse group, I suppose. But it was definitely more biased towards people who were more working class, people who might not have even had a high school diploma working in the military. To counteract that, the military had to then incentivize things like basically postgraduate, post high school education, or to incentivize more middle class people to enlist and you know so on and so forth and it introduces a lot of interesting problems and for our u.s military to you know continue sticking with this idea of voluntarianism that is really interesting especially what you mentioned about how um the military as at one point eventually be- essentially became more attractive to people who were less educated because it seems like part of the conversation we've been having about our mandatory and voluntary service proposals for science court is the issue of attracting, you know, like only people who are in college or like just a certain segment of the population. Um, so it is really interesting to hear how the military has appealed to different different sort of demographic groups over the years. All right, thank you, David. I really appreciate your time. All right, thank you. We hope you're enjoying the show so far. Now with the jury applications closed, the class is turning their attention to the trial on April 24th a webinar event that will be open to the public. Watch for a link to register soon. Could you first state your first and last name and just tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, so my name is Luke Diamond. I am a University of Minnesota alumnus and am currently a soldier in the Army training to become a psychological operator. Okay, what does that mean? I'm curious. <laughs> so psychological operations is the community that I'm training to work in. Psychological operations is tactical marketing. So when the United States is either involved in a conflict or even more importantly, maybe about to get involved in a conflict and they want to de-escalate and they want to do it without shooting at people. They bring in the psyops community first to do messaging and communications and to meet with local leaders to see if we can't negotiate our way out of a conflict uh, before we start shooting at one another. That is so cool. I didn't even know that was a thing. How long have you been in the army? I have been in for 15 months. What made you decide to become a part of the army? Two reasons. First off, I have always been very interested in current events and invested in the state of the nation. I grew up in a very, very conservative community in Southern Louisiana and then went to school in Minneapolis. And so my life was divided, it felt, between the two far ends of the political spectrum. Over the course of my undergraduate degree, I had a front row seat to 
robust discussions on both sides of the political aisle and saw that both sides had equally good intentions um, in general and in many ways equally good ideas, but there was no discussion happening between them because of political polarization. And so I didn't know how I wanted to help fix that, but I knew that was a problem I was interested in solving or helping to solve. And I knew that if I was going to ask other Americans to make changes in their lives or make sacrifices in their lives for the betterment of our country as a whole, that I should probably do that first. To me, that meant joining the military. So that was the first reason. The second reason was because I wanted to find out who I could be if I confronted the biggest challenge I could possibly imagine. And I'm gay. I didn't do anything particularly. I didn't have any like stereotypically masculine hobbies in college. And so I knew that if I was going to dive into an abyss that terrified me, it was going to be a career that at its core necessitated extremely masculine qualities and its members, its soldiers. I said, I want to find out what happens if I dive into that abyss with as much bravery as I can muster. (laughs) And so far, so good. That's very courageous. So how has it felt to be a part of it? How has it felt? Oh my goodness. So I have to separate my military experience so far into two sections. The first section is what in the civilian world is known as boot camp. And for me, that lasted six months. And then the other part is everything that happened after that. Boot camp makes an art of enforced misery. <laughs> it Everybody thinks it sucks because it does. The things that suck about it most cannot be captured in a military movie or written down in a military book because what people think sucks about it is having a drill sergeant yell at you and having to do a lot of push-ups. And that does suck, but that's only the top soil of what's actually going on. The much harder part of boot camp is that you are completely insulated from the outside world inside of, in this case, you're in a company, which is about 200 new soldiers, and you get treated like garbage by the drill sergeants every day. Um, You wake up at about 5 a.m. usually, and you go to bed at different times, but sometimes like you won't sleep at all. Um, The drill sergeants can harass you whenever they want, so they can come in during the middle of the night and make you start, you know, doing push-ups and screaming at you. You don't have your phones, you don't have access to the internet, you don't have access to news. And so it creates this like pressure chamber where you are stuck and it's the it is the repetition of that suck that is so mentally and emotionally trying. The second part is everything that happens after boot camp. It's like going back to college. Hmm. You live in a barracks, which a barracks is just a military word for a dorm. <laughs> I do my training during the day. Sometimes I have to go to the field, which just means going and doing outdoor training. But for the most part, I train during the day and then I go back to my dorm and I can do whatever I want and I can hang out with my friends and I can go off base and I can drink if I want to and I can, you know, hang out at my friends' apartments. So it's kind of just like college. 
So what does your training look like? A typical training day for me starts at around 5.30. I'll get up. I go and meet up with my class or my platoon at 6 a.m. at some outdoor location. We do a workout together. Then I go eat breakfast and then I go back to a hall and there's a classroom and they teach us something that day, whether that's land navigation or mental resiliency or marksmanship. We'll have some class and we go and we have instructors and then we break for lunch and then we'll come back for more class and the day's over. When you're in the field, it's totally different. When you're in the field, your days can start as early as 4 a.m. and end as late as never. You may just go through the night training and you sleep on a mat on the ground with a little blanket that they give you and you live out of a rucksack, which is just a really big backpack and your rucksack weighs like 60 pounds and you carry your 60 pound backpack with you everywhere through the woods. And obviously you don't shower hour. You use the restroom in the woods. Um, and overall, it's just a really bad time. <laughs> Nobody enjoys going to the field. So did you like make any friendships or any bonds? I have made some of the closest friendships of my life in the army. I've made three friends in particular. Two of them I have been with since my first day of basic training. And when you go through something that hard with someone else, it creates a bond that I could never imagine being reproduced in my life in the civilian world. Did you get to interact with individuals from different races and different backgrounds than you? The short answer is yes. In my basic training platoon, which is a group of about 50 guys. It was mostly white, maybe eight or nine Hispanic um, soldiers, and then two or three black soldiers as well. And we train alongside each other. You know, we do, we do everything together. Often like high school and college, the minority students tend to congregate um, into their own groups. So I can't say that I've had much more personal interaction with peers of different races in the military than I ever did in college. <laughs> but when I have had to collaborate with those soldiers in the training exercise, somebody starts firing at us and we have to figure out what the hell we're going to do. When you're in that situation, you bond so quickly with the people around you to make sure that your team succeeds and nobody suffers any more than they absolutely have to, that you will find yourself working flawlessly with people who in the civilian sector, you would never see yourself working with really under any circumstance. As for political polarization, I can speak a lot more to this. <laughs> I'll start with a little anecdote. <laughs> One of my first days in the military, I was missing my parents. I had just gotten my head shaved. My phone was taken. My life was hell. And I'm meeting all these other guys who I'm going to be training with. And one of them starts railing off about Fox News and about how Fox News is the most reliable news source. And it's all he listens to. And if America wants to get his act together, it should listen more to Fox News. And I was raised in a conservative community. 
I can definitely understand where somebody like him comes from. Cause that's where my parents come from. And it's where like the people who raised me come from. I do not find Fox news to be a reliable resource in general at all. And I was just thinking, who the hell is this kid? And how in the world am I supposed to train next to him for six straight months? That kid's name was Defty because we call everybody by their last names in the military. When you have to do push-ups with somebody every day, when drill sergeants yell at you with the guys next to you every day, when you have to not take showers in the field every day, when you have to lose sleep and lose food every day next to someone in boot camp, your political affiliations do not matter. And Defty and I became best friends because you know what? We did not care who was being elected president, which is actually worth noting because that's our commander in chief. That's our boss's boss's boss. All I cared about is does Defty need anything? And all Defty cared about was, does Luke need anything? Because we're in this together. And if he sucks, I'm going to suck too. So let's figure this shit out. What skills and training do you think are necessary in order to fight polarization? At least from your experience. I think there's two things. I think the military and in particular Boot camp fosters two really important ingredients in the fight against political polarization. The first one is that when you are in boot camp, it's just like the movies where you live in a big concrete room with bunk beds and a big bathroom where everybody uses the same bathroom and the same showers. The point being, you are confined to the same living space as the same 50 guys for six straight months. And you you get to a point where you know one another so intimately that it becomes impossible to reduce the person in the bunk next to you to their political party because you know too much about them. They're so three-dimensional that you cannot collapse them again into a two-dimensional political character. They're a person. So I think one way to fight political polarization is to realize that the Democrats who you can't stand or the Republicans who you think are ruining everything are not just Democrats and Republicans. They're people who who feel their concerns just as deeply as you feel yours and have just as complex and rich senses of humor as you do and have just as complex lives as you do. It's easy to hate a cardboard cutout that you label Democrat or Republican. It is very difficult to hate someone who you intimately know and who often your well-being relies upon. Second thing, which I guess I actually just boot camp takes something that I think we all know is true about civilian life. We all depend on one another. And I think in the civilian sector, once you maybe get out of elementary school, where you stop reading books that have that simplistic of take-home lessons, it's really easy to forget about that. And it's really easy to abstract it away in your mind. But when you are in boot camp and everybody in your platoon is going to be beat down into the ground to no end by a pack of drill sergeants 
if one person is lagging, there is an incentive to take care of that person because that in turn is taking care of yourself. And I think that is how the real world works too, but it's just so big and complicated that it's easy to forget about. But in boot camp, you will not forget that your well being depends on someone else because as soon as they mess up, your face will be in the dirt right next to theirs. So, Len, given our two proposals, which one do you think is a better approach to tackling polarization? So, the two are mandatory and voluntary. Volunteer. And I will add that voluntary to get people to, you know, be a part of the program, they're looking at having incentives as well. There is already a crotchety old man inside of me who is sitting on his porch who is demanding that everyone should have to go through what I went through. (laughs) Okay, why though? Part of me feels like everyone should have to publicly serve in some capacity. And I think the key word there is serve because especially in college, when you are paying for the world that is built around you, there is a constant impulse to complain that you aren't getting what you deserve. And I know that because I went to college and I complained a lot about that I wasn't getting my money's worth. When you participate in public service, it forces you to ask yourself what you owe your community and not what your community owes you. I think that that that's a mindset virtually no young people are encouraged to have directly or indirectly these days. And I also think that the benefit that our communities could reap from young people asking themselves that question is unfathomably rich and deep. Okay, what's holding you back then? Why then would volunteer be a better option? The reason that part of me is hesitant to just say everyone should have to do it is because I got a choice. No one told me that I had to do it. I got to decide that for myself. And to be honest, I don't know what degree... I don't know what degree of my current satisfaction with my life decision is resultant from the fact that it was a decision. I'm hesitant to take for granted that everyone would have the same experience as me if they were mandated into a public service position. I wasn't, I got a choice. And maybe the fact that I got a choice, maybe that agency has contributed to the positive experience that I've had. I just don't know. Do you think your service increased your feeling of an American identity? Hell yes. Okay. How so? So I'll give you a military specific answer and then just a general answer. The military specific answer is that When you enlist, you swear an oath of enlistment. And in the oath of enlistment, you take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Unless you are 
unless you just wound up in the military for totally arbitrary reasons, which some people definitely do, to me, it is impossible to swear that oath and not think about what that means. And so it does compel you to meditate on what you have just promised, which is essentially if push comes to shove, you will kill another human because they represent a threat to the American constitution. Being in the military specifically has increased my sense of being an American and my my sense of patriotism because I feel like I have considered deeply what it means to be American. And I have sworn, I have knowingly and voluntarily sworn an oath that in essence says that I believe that what America stands for is so good fundamentally that if someone tries to destroy it, I will kill them. In general, public service has increased my sense of patriotism and being an American because when you serve the public, you don't get to decide who reaps the benefits of your labor. You just put in the work and you put in the work for everybody. In this case, you put in the work for all Americans. The objective is the betterment of our larger community, which is the United States. But what would make you not want to join? The oh my God. No, 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 no. Believe me. That's an, that's a super easy thing to rattle off as well. If someone came to me and said, Luke, I'm thinking about enlisting in the army. Do you think I should? I would say, what are you specifically trying to get out of your army experience? Because if you go in not knowing people who are in charge of you are not going to care about you, they are not going to care about whether you feel fulfilled by your job or not. And lots of times they're going to treat you like shit or even worse, they're going to treat you like an inanimate object. And they're just going to tell you to go here, do that because that's a hole over there that needs to be filled. And you're a person who can fill it. If you think you're going to enlist in the military without a good aim, and you're just going to somehow by luck end up having a good time. I would definitely encourage you to rethink your decision. Do you think that goes for just public service in general? I don't know for sure because I haven't worked every public service job. That's fair. Yes. But my guess would be no, because the army is the only public service job I know of where number one, you never clock out ever. Uh, Number two, you often have to do, you often work under absolutely horrific work conditions. And number three, it's the only public service job I know of where if your boss is angry at you, he can make you do push-ups until you feel like you're about to die. So no, would be my guess. I think those probably aren't as big of issues with other public service jobs. What do you think you've learned from your service? Given everything, like what are your major takeaways? My biggest takeaway from serving in the military specifically is that I am capable of far more than I thought I was capable of. There are some things in life you just don't know you're capable of surviving until you've survived them. And each person's capacity to endure, I think, is far greater than the civilian world 
ever presents opportunities for people to realize. So that's definitely been a big takeaway. Here's another one that I'm wrestling with like right now. One of the reasons I joined is because I wanted to have the experience, the very intense experience of defending our country, you know, whatever, in whatever shape that took for me. And now that I'm in it and I am in theory defending freedom, which I do believe I'm doing on a very high abstract level, as far as my personal development goes, being in the military is not enough. Just because you serve in a public service position does not mean that you are going to feel purposeful all the time. It is possible to be in the military and in theory to be on call to go fight a war if 9-11 happens tomorrow and to not feel like you are contributing anything significant to your communities, both small and large. And I know that because I'm going through that right now. Once you are in the day in and day out of the military, you find that it starts to feel like normal life and all of your normal anxieties return and all of your normal concerns, especially as a young person about what am I going to do with my life and what am I going to contribute? And am I doing enough? And how am I going to have a family? And do I want to do grad school? All of those chickens come home to roost even after you've done something that is often considered to be very, very noble. Do you think to fully fight polarization, you would have to do public service multiple times? I don't know if you need to serve publicly at different points in your life to effectively fight political polarization. But what I do know is that if you're only going to do it once, do it after you get out of high school because you are on the threshold of the real world. And the earlier you can learn the lessons that public service has to teach you, the better it is going to serve you once you have crossed that threshold and are a fully participating member of your national community. Well, um, thank you so much, Luke, for Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, oh, for sure. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's been fun for me too. Thanks for joining us this week on Depolarizing America. Make sure to visit our website, scicourt.umn.edu, to stay updated on the latest research. Catch up with our weekly blog posts, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SciCourt. We hope to see you next time as we further discuss how to depolarize the United States.